0: Hey, you're listening to Corrupting the Youth, Liturgy is a Way of Life, with Father Matt Bolter, David Beadle, Ian Hyde, and Jason Eslicker, where we talk about theology and philosophy around the kitchen table. Hope you enjoy.
1: Um, shall we delve into this? let um, Returning to reality, Christian Platonism for our times. We tried to read a 200-page, fairly intense book in a week or less. Uh, in the midst of four extremely busy lives, so I'm sure that this this discussion will be more fly by the seat of our pantsish than the others. Although I, I did get probably seventy percent of it read, um, it's a, it's a great book, and I thought we would uh, begin with the table of contents. Before we do that, any thoughts on the book in general? And does anyone have anything that they want to say about this book? <clears throat> the title is "Returning to Reality." I suppose that might be a good place to begin. What, what do you think he means by the title "Returning to Reality"?
0: <clears throat> well, a return—a return implies that there's been a deviation, mm-hmm. and um, probably the, i mean—the one of the central tenets of Platonism is the uh, the insistence. On upon reality as such, the existence of reality, the real existence of reality, you know, um, that could be seen whenever Plato talks about how the philosopher seeks to know things as they are, you know, um, or the you know the forms of things or whatever you, whatever have you. So I, I just think that it's maybe broadly speaking, mm-hmm. simply just a return to um, to an acknowledgement of the real.
1: Mm-hmm. And. Also, I think it's... Plato speaks of being versus becoming. Becoming being the, the items in the world that we see, things that grow and decay, things that break, things that wither. Uh, nothing that we see lasts forever. Hmm. Um, and so for Plato, those things are less real reality, less real than something else, some other realm... That he thinks is permanent and eternal and unchanging, and that he calls being. So yeah, I like it. I like that. But but also, piggybacking on your point about return implies a deviation. So are you thinking historically there? Yes. Say more about that.
0: <clears throat> um, so, I mean, not to exhaustively trace like. The entire history of right. philosophy.
1: We're going to get into some of that.
0: Yeah, but just to point out that um, somewhere along the path, maybe at various points along the path, um, rather than the search for <clears throat> a reality that is beyond, that is beyond the mutable world, the the time and space filled world, um, we have um, immanentized reality in some instances, and then in other instances. Um, actually talked about kind of the utter evasiveness of reality that the, that you know if there is a reality there's no possible way of attaining to it. So we have
1: done this who is we?
0: Um, probably just the history of western thought.
1: Okay so the west. The west yeah. Good yeah and so so he's advocating for some sort of return to that older view that sees reality as consisting of more than just appearances.
0: Yeah, and maybe even someone in, you know, a modern um, scientific naturalist or materialist would say, well, what do you mean returning to reality? We, You know, we have reality. We observe mm-hmm. reality every day, mm-hmm. you know. And so this might even seem like um, irrelevance mm-hmm. or... Mm-hmm. Patronizing. Patronizing, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and he's also speaking specifically to Christians as well because... You know, in, in the book, he talks about the theological and philosophical implications and consequences of things like nominalism and uh-huh. voluntarism, uh-huh. and he's saying that modern Christian theology has been deeply affected by these things. And so we need to re- make a return to reality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, that nominalism that you bring up—I mean, that—well, it's impossible to divorce the history of philosophy from the history of Christianity you know, they right. go hand in hand, um, <clears throat> and, and in most points are probably interchangeable. So that nominalism definitely had its effects
1: throughout, I right. mean through and through. It's a medieval thing. Yeah. And what, one of the things I think that you're both saying is that secular people today might be of the opinion that the phenomena out there in the world is what's real guess what christians say the same thing right mm-hmm. so yeah he might be addressing this book to a christian audience that in a, in a sense that doesn't matter mm-hmm. the majority of christians out there have the same assumptions right. as secular people so yeah <laughs> uh, i want to read the little his little blurb on the back super briefly and then let's let's delve into the table of contents uh, Paul Tyson is an honorary assistant professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Nottingham. He is author of Faith's Knowledge. I found a, a thing that he wrote on the metaphysics of money that I put on posted on my Twitter account. It's really good. It's really good. Mm-hmm. But but other than that, I don't really know much about this Paul Tyson guy. I've never met him. Um, I've never seen a YouTube video by him or anything like that but this, this book is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the sense that he's probably Anglican. I get the sense that he's probably sympathetic with evangelicalism in some ways, but he also has some real Catholic convictions like maybe the four of us. Um, okay, table of contents. There's three parts of the book after the introduction. Part one is rediscovering a Christian understanding of reality. <clears throat> Within part one, you've got two chapters, two views of reality, And then secondly Christian Platonism of Lewis and Tolkien. Um, I want to ask you what are the two views of reality but I also just want to spit this out super quick. I really liked the chapter on Christian Platonism of Lewis and Tolkien. Sometimes I get a little sick of Lewis and Tolkien almost like I've had enough of them so I've overdosed on them and so I maybe I think that I've been there done that this really opened my eyes in some mm. in some really good ways. Yeah. I really appreciated that chapter. What are the two views of reality, chapter one?
0: So in chapter one, he defines the two views of reality as a one-dimensional metaphysical outlook mm. and a three-dimensional metaphysical outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start with a three-dimensional outlook. The three-dimensional outlook sees the moral dimension. What page are you on? Uh, just page 16, right cool. there at the beginning the three-dimensional outlook sees the moral dimension the physical dimension and the spiritual dimension of our experience as all equally integral to reality as a whole so the three-dimensional outlook maintains that in a human being for example you cannot try to unravel or functionally obliterate any of these dimensions without damaging or destroying a real understanding of what it means to be human so he's he's looking for an a utter integration of the three-dimensional outlook, and then on the other hand, there's the one dimensional outlook and I think the one dimensional mm-hmm. outlook is is merely the physical the physical aspect like mm-hmm. any maybe we could say anything that could be um observed by the scientific process or mm-hmm. something like that mm,
1: or maybe even just anything that can be measured
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. So the one-dimensional and the
1: three-dimensional; those are the two views of reality. Cool. Um, one of the things that always strikes me when I hear that kind of thing, like these two alternatives articulated in that way, I, I really like it. But the one-dimensional reality is like the moment you have items in the world with form. You're, you're already outside of the one-dimensional reality. Hmm. Like, in other words, there's no such thing as just brute matter. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I think that Paul Tyson brings this out a little bit when he talks about how the one-dimensional view is self-refuting. And so that's why we can give Nietzsche a high five, because he calls the bluff of that one-dimensional reality point of view. In other words, he... he he, Nietzsche wants to say science is a joke if the one-dimensional reality thing is true science is a joke There can be no such thing as form. There can be no such thing as uh, Rational interpretations no one interpretation is better than the other um, All sorts of things and so Nietzsche calls the buff of science and we'll get to this soon But that but as Christians or as Christian Neoplatonists we can give a high-five to Nietzsche but not go all the way down with him. Hmm. And that's why people like Haman are good guys. He talks about, huh. um, uh, what's his first name? I can't think of his first name right now. Haman, H-A-M-A-N-N, we'll get there soon. But yeah, three dimensionality, one dimensionality. So, just and just an example of this would be, um,
0: last night, hmm. uh, the, our honors program had a scientist come in and his whole spiel hmm. was on, um, you know, cislunar uh, travel in space and developing a uh, system where we could we could maintain our travel to space, we could repeat our travel to space, blah, 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 blah. And what was interesting was he's going on about this mm. how he would do it and how he wants to do it, how much money it's going to cost the government, et cetera, et cetera. And when we had time for question and answer, it was really interesting because it seemed like the students didn't necessarily care as much about... How much radiation people would be exposed to, or how much water was on the moon's, you know, on the moon's poles, or whatever. Although that was interesting, you know, people were asking questions. Students were asking questions like, "Well, but why? Why? Why do we need to explore space? Why do we need these? You know, um, you know, why? Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to become spacefaring, a spacefaring species?" As he, as he put it, it was really interesting. Wow! Because that takes us
1: beyond the one dimension. It does. And it asks the moral question. So the moment he tries to answer that question, he's stepping outside. He's taking off his scientist hat. Exactly. And it was
0: interesting. There were two things he appealed to. One was politics. He said something to the effect of, if America doesn't do it, another nation will do it and we'll lose our whatever bubble, blah, 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 our exceptionalism. And He didn't say that, but that's basically At said.
1: that point, a responsible student is going to ask, why should I believe this guy's opinion about politics any more than any other person's? Right. He's a scientist, not a politician. Right. And then another thing that got
0: brought up was he said, and I won't bore you guys with all the details, but I mean, he said, Mm. this came out of his mouth. It is inevitable that if we become a space-faring people, eventually there will be a space in war. Or war in space, sorry. To which everyone kind of snickered because of Star Wars, you know. Mm -hmm. But like, the point is, like he was, he jumped to it quickly. He said, "I have no doubt in my mind. We've been at war our entire history. If we go to space, there will be space wars, and things like that." And that's the reason
1: we should go to space.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. This is, right, exactly. That that makes me go. Well, then maybe we shouldn't. Right? right. I was like, you know, I mean,
1: if if if
0: Frankenstein teaches us anything, right? It's that is that the, our brutal ambition oh, should be checked by nature mm-hmm. and by morality, and.
1: That and the one-dimensionality view is not robust enough to do that. No,
0: it's all about brutal
1: ambition. It's Which is unacknowledged. And, and, and I mean, like, pure one-dimensionality can't contain... Uh, what, what did you just say? Ambition? Yeah. There's no, there is no such thing as ambition in a one-dimensional universe. There's only atoms. Actually, there's not even atoms. They're just, like, prime matter or something. <laughs> but yeah, so,
0: it, so it's self-refuting. Right. And so the question is, I mean, somebody might say, well, then these scientists need to just maybe avoid morality or need to finally consider morality. Someone but, said that? No, 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 no. Oh. I'm saying this might be a possible response. Yeah. To which I think um, Tyson would say, well, no, There, no matter what, it, even if you don't acknowledge it, morality is always at play. The other two dimensions are always at play. Mm-hmm. The problem is that we're not... Aware of them sometimes, or that some people who assume this one-dimensional reality just simply aren't aware, and so therefore, if you're not aware of something, then you're a slave to it. <clears throat> you're you're bound by it. So I just thought that was really interesting last night. Hmm. You know, because the first question a student said, um, "This is great, but why?" And that was it. And, and that's that awesome. That was awesome.
2: And Tyson seems to say that he thinks that there's a lot more of awareness of the other dimensions and maybe we would give credit to Um, and he thinks that it's used for political coercion you know it's almost like the ideology on on the wall in the cave it's like the guys casting the shadows knew what was going on they knew there was something beyond this they knew they were kind of um, creating an illusion for other people Uh to open up their pocketbooks to or Mm -hmm. Mm chain themselves to yeah Um, and he seems to have like a a very deep distrust of political ideology Mm. um so, yeah, I, I don't know. I just wonder Amen. how yeah. unaware people are of the other dimensions yeah. at, at a higher, at a, like, hegemonic power-structured level. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think, totally. of,
0: think of the reason we went to space yeah. in the past.
2: It's but it's like that scientist
0: has bought into the bullshit
2: of somebody else. That's probably
1: That's right. Higher That's higher right. Opinion. Yeah. Yeah, and, and one question we could ask is who are those people? Uh-huh. Who are the people who are projecting the images on the cave wall? Yeah Hmm. because like when i was reading and and this gets this actually gets to the next chapter Mm -hmm. the one on lewis and tolkien uh the christian platonism of lewis and tolkien because he brings up the cave analogy in this Mm -hmm. chapter and yeah let's just let's just go into that um yeah let's see here the analogy of the cave in Plato's Republic, I mean, in some ways, this is philosophy 101, but man, it's yeah. good stuff. It's really good stuff. The cave
2: is a deep wellspring. I haven't found the bottom of it yet. <laughs> Amen. Yeah.
1: So, Ian, were you able to read the, this yeah. section? What did you think?
2: Um, I, th- I thought it was good. I, I think, especially after reading Lewis on, on um, myth a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and then yep. his conversation with myth in this book mm-hmm. as well. I think mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it was captivating to my imagination, I think. So it kind of maybe shed what was already a myth in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like it put a light onto something that already kind of transcended like these boundaries that I have, which is the cave allegory. And because it was put in a different kind of language, it did that in a different way, but it still had those concrete...
1: I don't know what I'm saying, but... It's good. It felt different. <laughs> good. <laughs> what? And we're going to talk more about myth as, as we continue. Yeah. But what does he say <laughs> about the cave analogy? He, unpack, he, he just does a rendition of it on page 26 mm-hmm. and 27. Mm-hmm. And then he, he says that the thing in the silver chair is um, very similar right mm-hmm. to what's going on in, in Plato's cave um, who, who are the characters in the silver chair thing you sis, and Jill mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they are let's see here they're somewhere underground right
0: it's been a long time since I've ever in the silver chair
1: yeah he he rehearses it um, they're locked in a cave I'm on 27 the last complete paragraph mm. they're locked in a cave in a life and death encounter with the enchantress she tries to re-enchant the prince and to entrance the three other children and turns all her powers to that end so basically You've got these kids and the prince down in the cave with an enchantress. Let me ask you this. Does the enchantress know... I I think this is really intriguing. Does she... See, presumably in Plato's cave, the people who are projecting the the images on the wall, they know that they are deceiving the prisoners, right? Mm -hmm. Presumably. Yeah, I mean, could, could you even argue that they don't know that they're deceiving the prisoners? I mean I don't think so. I don't I don't think so either. They they know that these images on the wall are not real and that what is real is their hands and those blindfolds and the chains that are harnessing the prisoners. That's the stuff that's real. What would be
2: the intention of doing that if it wasn't to
1: illusion. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, this enchantress, do you think that she knows that what she's doing is a deception? Yes. You do think that? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if there's a reason not to. Well, I mean, isn't it conceivable that she actually believes the stuff that she's telling the children?
0: Oh, I see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. See, I find that a very interesting question, and I'll just I'll just cut to the chase. I I was thinking about Donald Trump when I was reading this, and I don't think that Donald Trump is consciously pulling levers. Huh. No, I think that he's one of the enslaved. Interesting. Do you understand? Yeah. I think that Donald Trump is, is is a victim of ideology, not a perpetrator of ideology. Do you
0: think that that becomes especially possible in democracy?
1: Yes, absolutely. So
0: then I guess it would make sense.
1: But see, I, I think that, that you can easily see the enchantress in the silver chair. She... she I, you could even say she's well-meaning. She really believes that the only reason the children think that there's a real sun out there is because they saw that lamp. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. It's pretty fascinating.
0: Did you, th- th- that little narrative is worth reading out loud on page 28? Read it for us. Um, okay, so this is, the, this is the witch, the enchantress, asking, uh, talking to Eustace, what is this sun that you speak of? Do you mean anything by the word? yes we jolly do said Eustace can you tell me what it is like asked the witch please it your grace said the prince very coldly and politely you see that lamp it is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and hangeth moreover from the roof now the thing which we call the sun is like the lamp only far greater and brighter it giveth light to the whole overworld and hangeth in the sky hangeth from what my lord asked the witch and then While they were all still thinking how to answer her, she added, with another of her soft silver laughs, You see, when you try to think out clearly what this sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it's like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a
1: children's story. It's a brilliant analogy. It is. Mm-hmm. And so when In some ways it's even more brilliant than Plato's cave. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because
0: she's already subject to some some sort of manipulation and she's mm-hmm. perpetuating that manipulation. And,
1: well, I think it's debatable. I don't I am not yeah. sure. I I don't know if she is deceiving or deceived or both. But I don't know how it could be both. I mean, you know, yeah. maybe it could be both through, through some complicated means like like uh, the subconscious or something. (laughs) But I I think she could be either deceived or deceiving. Um, I love what Lewis says later. He says that one of these characters, I can't remember which one, I guess it's Eustace. And isn't Eustace, is Eustace the one who later turns out to be uh, the professor? I can't remember right now. But, But one of the characters... Oh, no, it's Puddlegum. He, um, on the top of page 29, it says, But, Reasons Puddlegum, even if his beliefs are fictions, they are so much better than the shallow and oppressive realities of the underworld that he will be happier believing in fantasy than in reality and will by no means accept such a dark reality. That's hardcore.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
1: I mean, he's prepared
2: to be insane he is he's prepared to be insane
1: he's prepared to throw logic out the window Wow <laughs> I mean I, I'm not sure that I would bring this up in a debate with Sam Harris no although I, I also kind of believe it like I also think that there's something awesome about it
0: yeah that's 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 very pretty much the same thing as what he said in myth myth right. that 50. is that is
1: right Yeah.
0: yeah when he says that it's the mythical aspect mm-hmm. that's that's the real substance of, the, of it all right and even if the myth
1: weren't true it would be what gives it all substance yeah or okay. even if someone doesn't believe in the literal resurrection of christ but has drunk deeply of the myth maybe they're like latching on to the most important part <laughs> hmm. <laughs> it's, it's crazy but stuff you say
0: that in a hushed, reverential tone if you want that's to right that. that's right
1: um <laughs> yeah I mean I think the difference between the silver chair on the one hand and the cave on the other is that the enchantress is making see in the, in, in the cave the prisoners the difference is, is that in the cave the prisoners aren't trying to convince themselves that the outside world is real they just don't know of it mm. whereas in, in the silver chair there's this debate going on which is, more, which is real? the lamp or the sun? or both? Which is prior yeah. the lamp of the sun?
0: You know what? You could almost say if you're to follow Plato's analogy, it's almost like it's later on in the analogy. That's right. And the philosophers mm-hmm. have gone out. That's right. Come back in. That's gone right. out Be gone halfway out. Come back mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a whole um, sort right. of uh, community, and maybe at that point the people who are now in charge, casting the shadows, have also been deceived. I mean, it's it's a weird thing to think about, but you
1: know, that's kind of right. Jumps in the middle there. I thought that the Tolkien one was a little less uh, provocative. Um, he, he, what he chooses to focus on is sort of the moral dimensions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of Neoplaton, Christian Neoplatonism and in particular this idea of the Ring of Gyges. Uh, y'all know the myth of the Ring of Gyges? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about... It's in, I think, maybe book two of the Republic? Yeah. Book please. two of the Republic. And um, Ian, do you remember the myth of Gyges?
2: Yeah, it's about... Uh, it's a shepherder, yeah, correct. Who's through the powers of this ring is able to basically become invisible and act in whatever manner he would like, whether it comes oh, like raping yeah. and pillaging or mm-hmm. uh, feeling up his neighbor's wife or whatever. And so Glaucon kind of talks about that within respect to justice that if any man were to be given this ring, how would he act? Would he not? So, justice is doing the things that are seen. Right. (laughs) If that makes any sense. Like, it's It's when we no longer are seen or no longer um, feel as if we have eyes on us. You know, maybe this is like a Foucaultian thing about why we have big boxes in the middle of panoptic huns. Yeah, uh, Mm -hmm. in jails to make you feel like you're being watched or something. Yeah. Didn't Jeremy Bentham come up with that? Yeah. Um, Anyways, yeah. So So,
0: what's the point about justice? So, basically, that that myth or that idea is to for Glaucon to set up the notion that justice is merely conventional.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. Which is a modern perspective. But yeah. it's
2: yeah, it's arbitrarily conventional too, because if,
1: mm-hmm. if it's merely and it's merely conventional. Yeah. Yeah. Because Plato yeah. and Aristotle and C. S. Lewis and Tolkien, they don't deny that justice is conventional. Yeah. They just don't think that it's merely conventional. Yeah. They think that there's a, an objective base at the bottom of conventional morality. Yeah.
0: You know, and that's interesting, and I think if, if we're constantly thinking about this title, Returning to Reality, mm-hmm. you know, I, I find it interesting, first of all, that the witch um, is saying that what they see is reality, and everything that they think is beyond is the shadow. Right, the enchantress, yeah. The enchantress, and everything beyond is the shadow, and then it's, it's Platonism, or it's C.S. Lewis's characters who think that everything beyond is reality and what they see is the shadow. That's right. And it flips. And so with this example, it's uh, convention or conventionality can really be fit into what you see and what you do. Right? Absolutely. And so Glaucon's claiming that justice, like the enchantress, is what you see. It's what it's what's in front of you. And if no one were looking, therefore, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. There's nothing, else. There were nothing that would keep you from doing anything. Yeah. He
2: says, for wherever anyone thinks that he can safely be unjust, there he is unjust. (laughs) And I I love the project, at least, um, what Tyson says Tolkien's project was Mm -hmm. in his writing, which was to find their inner psychology of the type of just man who would not be corrupted by the power of the ring.
1: Hmm. I think that's... That Frodo, think, baby. That's pretty sweet. Hobbit, right?
0: yeah. It is. That's awesome.
1: Amen. Yeah. Cool.
0: Uh, yeah, so high-five Lewis and Tolkien. Oh, there, if we're done there, uh, there is one thing I wanted to say that they say. Yeah. Um, he says, Thus... Philosophers and the powerful are typically locked in combat for the hearts and minds of people. I thought that was so awesome. Um, Competing for the vision of reality, you know. Um, And then he goes on, and what the philosopher, which he puts in parentheses, profit, question mark. Mm -hmm. What the philosopher sees and says is real is what the controllers of culture and power often say is delusional fantasy. Designed merely to trick and control ordinary people. Likewise, what the controllers of culture and power say is real and inevitable is what the philosophers often say is delusional fantasy designed to trick and enslave ordinary people. And I mean, throughout the Republic, convention is it's such a big deal for Socrates. Defying convention, defying convention. Um, and I don't think it's merely in an anarchist way, and maybe we can talk about this another time, but I think there's, there's two ways, probably fundamentally, that you can defy convention and that is in an individualistic way where you kind of look inside yourself to find yourself and to act according to the to that or mm. you go beyond for some sort of transcendent reality and i think that mm-hmm. that neoplatonism or what's what's being espoused here is to go beyond you know uh, to find reality it's awesome
1: yeah and again i think plato and Socrates, they don't simply give the middle finger to convention. Yeah. They just don't want to be enslaved by it.
0: Otherwise otherwise Socrates would have done away with poetry altogether. Also and otherwise he would, he other would have drank the hemlock.
1: He would have walked around Athens naked. Yeah. Like No, I mean like there is such a thing as kindness. Yeah, there is such a thing as the wisdom of our ancestors Yeah, Yeah. it's just that you don't want to be Enslaved Mm. by those you don't want to be naive about them and you don't want to mistake them for ultimate reality Yeah, I mean there really was a lamp down in that cave the enchantress's cave and the lamp was real that it it was real
0: It just wasn't the totality of reality. Mm. It wasn't the whole thing
1: and it wasn't even prior primary yeah.
0: I mean, you're, I think you're right. And to your point, Socrates, when he takes his interlocutors through the journey that they always go through, he, he
1: always begins where they are. That's right. Mm. Otherwise, he wouldn't do that. There's lots of legitimate uses for convention. Mm. It's just not ultimate. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and, and it can't be all there is. Mm. All right. High five, Lewis and Tolkien okay now the second part part two uh oh, chris yeah.
2: yeah just to the convention thing, okay just really quick I, I,
1: anyone know what the greek word for convention is namas like, 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 it, it's the same word yeah well wow. and there's there's two kinds of law in greek there's namas and themis but also in latin namas gets translated as more morit most most mos from which we get words like morality and more like sexual mores really yeah
2: i was just going to say like kind of to you um your point about plato and aristotle not throwing out convention completely and saying that parts of it are are good but it's not the end all be all right um there's a little footnote on page 57 where it says it's kind of describing these two different kinds of way, these two different kinds of ways of being postmodern. Sorry, what page? Page
1: 57. Oh,
2: you're jumping the head cool. cool. Well, just it, oh. it relates, I think. Awesome. There's two different ways of being postmodern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and the second one is what is really interesting. He says the other type of postmodernism is one that finds divinity acting within human language and culture. Yeah, this mm-hmm. isn't here, God Haman. But here, divine truth is never reducible to the human media in which it is partially manifest. I yep. Think that,
1: like, yeah,
2: that's That's exactly what you're saying. That's, that's right. Exactly what Plato yeah. was saying. That's
1: right. So even the Bible can be viewed as convention. Mm-hmm. It's language. It's contingent. Uh, Nietzsche would say, therefore, it's meaningless or slash can be used as a power play yeah. for the will to power. Christians like Kierkegaard, Heyman, and Milbank will... They have a different take. Yeah. Mm. It's related. It's not ne- merely they, reduced. They get, that's right. And yet Nietzsche is a very helpful critique yeah. against the one-dimensional worldview. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. But it does not go far enough. Yeah. At least he... he Tyson's saying continually that he needs to be supplemented oh, with this absolutely. other guy that nobody cares about. That's right. what he
1: says. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so let let's go to the first chapter of part two, the mythos of modernity. I I want okay. Well, okay, so <clears throat> first off, let's let's acknowledge that for Tyson. All logoi, every single logos, and we can talk about what do we mean by logos. Every logos is rooted in a prior mythos. That's his claim. Um, that's also Joseph Pieper's claim. I, I'm sure that C.S. Lewis agree, would agree with that. So, for example, you could say that Christian theology, the idea of the Trinity, the idea of the of the incarnation, all this stuff is rooted in a prior story called the Bible, the the story of Israel, there's lots of ways you can say it but the logos is rooted in a prior mythos, right? Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, okay, well there's this new logos that characterizes our world, we could call it modernity and it's no different from every other logos, it too is rooted in a prior story. Mm-hmm. Now I this is something that you hear a lot, that I've heard a lot and I, I want to believe it and I do believe it but I also have a problem that I just want to raise and and get y'all to respond to the problem is that well maybe we should start like this what is the mythos the prior mythos that our modern logos is rooted in what is the narrative of modernity according to tyson and and make it as simple as you can don't don't give me all the details
2: it's the myth of progress free from other myths (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's right and other myths such as uh, religious bullshit yeah spirituality, the dark ages yeah. the church that's right I mean that's basically it yeah. I mean we could, we could fill out a million details mm-hmm. but okay here's the problem I have with that if you compare that myth let's just call it the myth of progress compare that myth for example to the Iliad and the Odyssey which by the way you could argue that that is the myth out of which Plato and Aristotle emerge mm-hmm Or compare that myth of progress to the Biblical story. If you think about Homer in the Biblical story, you have things like plot. You have things like characters. Let me just ask you, do you have things like plot and characters in the myth of progress?
2: I think you have good guys and bad guys. Okay. I think you have protagonists and antagonists. Good and and he, and he religious movements.
1: Okay. He sort of builds a
0: myth. He he called it in his section on uh-huh. beginning on page forty seven called the Song of
1: Modernity. He sort of writes what he sees as the Song of Modernity and he includes characters. Right. People like Descartes. Descartes, Francis Bacon, yeah. he starts with Thales. Right. Um, and Yeah, good. Okay. So I agree with you. Let me mm-hmm. let me crank my problematic up a notch Mm -hmm. in aristotle's poetics aristotle defines mythos okay sure one of the constituent features of a mythos for aristotle is that it is designed to produce some kind of emotional effect in the audience Mm -hmm. so not so Can you see how that might be true of the Iliad and the Odyssey? Mm -hmm. How the Iliad and the Odyssey might provoke an emotional response on the part of the reader? Yeah. Okay, what about the Bible? Can you see how the Bible might provoke... Okay, what about the myth of progress?
2: I think the word progress... Itself evokes some kind of pathos or, or emotional response. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, it, like it's just really it's wow. closely aligned. This with is this this idea of Something to anticipate. Oh my so gosh, this is awesome. Forward, something to leave behind. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. A, there's a feeling of victory almost. Yeah. Oh totally. And I think that's why.
1: Yeah.
0: What else would fuel like Columbus? Or, or Yeah. Spiritedness.
1: Right. Yeah, the, the desire to be a rock star. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. What else is the like the French Revolution? You know, spirit mm-hmm. of the age. I mean, there there is, I think, wow. I think that it's extremely emotional. Yeah, I do too. It's exciting. It's triumphant. Yeah. It's, you know, it's 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 toward this something toward toward this age of something. You know, redemption.
1: Uh, equality. Heaven. Utopia.
0: Yeah, definitely
1: utopian. Definitely the space war. war. Yeah, right. <laughs> space wow. Well, do you do you at least understand my questions? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I'm going to have to meditate on this because I've never quite bought the idea that the myth of modernity is exactly like these other myths. It it almost seems like history. Okay. The, the Iliad and the Odyssey is not history mm-hmm. the book of Genesis is not history hmm.
2: yeah but th- this is a this is a scientific history almost you yeah know? I agree so you exclude revelatory factors in the Bible and you just tell the bare bones scientific observations and that's you know what I mean like if they if this age were to go back and retell the mythos of the Bible there would be no resurrection it would be the Jef- Jefferson Bible right like mm-hmm. But this age doesn't really care about any of that, so right. we have basically history without any kind of revelation. So
1: let me ask you a question Is it a good story? What do you mean by good?
2: I don't know. Is it captivating? Um. Is it.
0: Yeah. I, I don't. I would not say it's a good story.
1: I wouldn't say it's a I don't, good story. I don't mean it's. Yeah, I don't know what I mean because I, I, I
0: think it's a really
2: powerful story that has captured a lot of people's minds and hearts and wallets. i do know i
0: think it's captured people's minds and hearts and wants because of wallets quote the vestige. <laughs> the vestiges yes that's true.
1: okay i'm gonna go get a beer while i'll talk yeah, about this because okay. of one, the, yes the vestiges
0: of religion you know i mean for example like in the romantic period like gothic literature arises out of this kind of observation or obsession with these abandoned churches mm-hmm. these magnificent like just gorgeous like abandoned cathedrals these towering buildings and things like that mm-hmm. and what comes out of that is these these gothic stories of like terror and and and, and so like you even have this exhilaration we talk about stories you have this exhilaration of gothic literature that's based on these spiritual Uh, beings, occurrences, realms stories and these stories are basically just kind of like a maybe a bastardization of, of religious stories people who actually believed in those spiritual entities and I think that in a way the modern mythos is like a ghost story about ghosts that don't actually exist you know what I mean? Like for example, you have like the myth of progress, but progress into what, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I think that's the exciting
2: part of it. I, th- I think that's the part that makes kids want to be astronauts. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Progress into what? Well, just the sky is expansive and we're, we're moving that direction. Progress into what? Go and find out, you know? I don't know. Progress,
1: progress uh, unto gold. the ap- apotheosis of the human race, by which I mean, we, can- we are God. Yeah. Like if we colonize the entire universe Okay, but that's totally like that's totally like the
0: gothic, you know? Oh it's, yeah. It's totally the Gothic. It's sure. It's God's not real, we are God, but we maintain this desire for God, even if we find it in ourselves. Like it's it's really weird, it's like this perversion of of God, like it's it's hanging on to this vestiges of Christianity that are within us I mean, and, no and still excite us. They can't
2: use our language. I mean, they can't help but use Christian language. Progress makes me think of like hope. But I think they hope can't help. Makes use, me think of the New Testament. But they can't you know. use. This thing. is what I'm
0: writing my dissertation yeah. on. but they can't. They like we we don't have the modern story without the Christian story. Hmm. As I'm saying, it's like we're actually like it's using the Christian story to excite people. It's
1: parasitic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sure. It's and, and just so, living
1: off of borrowed capital.
0: Exactly. Why would we have hope for a better tomorrow, without, like, Augustine's reading of history, or without, the Jewish reading of history, or we wouldn't. You know, it's the same kinds of notions of progress that we we still get excited over. Yeah.
2: Were you saying that in like disagreement with something that was being said? No.
0: Or were you well not I was like saying I'm trying to, no I'm just trying to locate what it is that is so captivating about the modern story and I would say that it's at least partly if not entirely due to the claims of Christianity and I would say that it's not just due to the claims of Christianity because that's the culture we're raised in but also because of that's that's who we are it's, beca- it's
2: so captivating because of the claims of Christianity
0: yeah yeah
1: do you understand? Do you think you do you understand that Ian? Do you get what he's saying?
2: I, I I thought I did at first, but now I'm maybe a little bit
0: lost. So I would say, like the Christian story, is captivating because it's true. Mm-hmm. It's true, and it and, and thus it excites um, us. It re- we recognize its truth. We recognize its true. Some level, exactly, mm-hmm. and so that the modern story then is a bastardization mm-hmm. of the same thing. And those, those ideas still captivate us. If, 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 if you're born, you know, tomorrow, like my baby might be. <laughs> or today. Or today. If you're born tomorrow or today, in 16 years, it doesn't matter what the world looks like, these same like, concepts will still captivate you.
1: you know, now, let me, what I want to do is I want to use that as a springboard, this idea that the modern progress myth is a counterfeit version of the biblical story that already uh, that already coheres with one of uh Tyson's points because Tyson says it might be a good story but it's actually just inaccurate um the the way that the that the western myth of progress goes is that you know in the, in, in the modern enlightenment, Descartes, Bacon, etc. they were getting back to the ancient classical philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. But Gerson presents an alternative genealogy and says that's that's BS. The, the reality is that the modern world is deeply what? Medieval. <laughs> it's deeply medieval. And so i think that the christian structure of, of the modern progress myth that makes sense it makes sense to to think that the modern world is deeply medieval because yeah. the, the the modern story is a alternative version of the medieval story which is the biblical story and does that make
2: sense yeah no i i think what you what i thought you were saying you were mm-hmm. actually saying i just was confused maybe by the semantics a little bit in the final like end all be statement it's just like somebody, I don't know, and maybe this, this is dumb, so don't put this out there, but I'm just like, I just don't, it's kind of like saying somebody who's, who's a slave kills his master or sets himself free from bondage from his master, and then you say everything that happens in that, in that guy's life or, or that guy's story or whatever is possible because of his old master. Does that make any sense? Like science, there's this kind of like uh, freedom from bondage and like we were in bondage maybe to uh, the church or to the the, the papal authorities and and into illusions on cave walls and stuff and the Mm -hmm, myth of progress mm -hmm. or the, the, uh, well, I guess it is, the the myth of progress and science and all of that is kind of like setting us free. We killed God, you know, now we must remake ourselves in his image. But I don't really know if we can credit god for that you see what i'm saying i don't know if we can credit christianity for what develops out of that it's just a natural consequence of Mm -hmm. i don't know what could it be a necessary but
1: insufficient condition
2: yeah that's how I. i don't know because i think he
1: would agree with that but the
0: reality like what i'm saying is that christianity isn't just like one story that precedes another story christianity is the true story so it makes an anthropological claim about us that's real Mm -hmm. right And within that reality of the human being, which we inevitably, unavoidably are, we're going to be excited um, by the same types of things. It's like I'm—I'm trying to say I think what Augustine says when he says that all desires ultimately desire unto God. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is a perversion of the story, but it still has similar components because in our makeup, in our anthropology, we want those things. We want those things. (laughs) Sure. That's all I'm trying to say. You
1: also have similar similar makeup with Homer. Right. Because for the same reason. Absolutely. Although not as much because Homer is not derivative of the biblical story in the same way that the modern progress myth is derivative of the biblical story. Man, I thought
2: I understood you and then I thought I misunderstood you and then I thought I understood you again and then I misunderstood you and now I understand.
1: (laughs) So, cool. So, look, on page... um, So, I think that this chapter, the mythos of... of (laughs) The mythos of modernity is probably the longest chapter one of the longest chapters in the book Um, and it's pretty complex on page 60 one of the sections is entitled modernity is medieval what does he mean by this all right so basically you've got the fall of the Roman Empire in the sixth century and what develops in the 6th 7th 8th 9th 10th centuries you could you could call you could call it augustinian theology you could call it you could call it christian neoplatonism and and what's what's crucial about christian neoplatonism for tyson is that it holds the external sun and the lamp together it holds faith and reason together it holds the transcendent and the appearances Together, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It says there's no. We love reason. We love reason. We can read Aristotle's logic, etc., etc. We love reason, but there's more. There, and also, there's something before reason, faith. Augustine said, "I believe in order to understand." Anselm said that the Christian life is a journey of faith seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. Fides quaerens intellectum. So, that's what you have up until about the beginning of the 12th century, or or the 11th century. Then, there's a bombshell in Western Europe, and it's something that the four of us have talked about before, especially when we read that peeper book on Thomas Aquinas. What is the bombshell?
0: The introduction of Aristotle into the West.
1: Correct. And what Tyson says and Radical Orthodoxy would agree with this. Pope Benedict XVI, in his Regensburg Address, agrees with this. What, what began to happen is a separation of faith and reason. And, and it's all because of the rediscovery of Aristotle. And, secondarily, because the people who were giving the Western Christians Aristotle were the... Muslim. Muslims. And so... We were kind of like freaked out by this. Oh my God, we like they have Aristotle, what are we going to do? Like, we can't let them out narrate us. You know, we can't let them one up us. (laughs) And so it becomes really hard for Christians in the West, Latin speaking Christians, to do what? To do what Thomas Aquinas does, which is to hold these two things together. Mm. Thomas Aquinas is so. Great-minded and great-hearted so magnanimous according to these guys Tyson and company That he's not afraid of Aristotle Aristotle doesn't cause him to sweat Thomas Aquinas is like hey all truth is God's truth This Aristotle guy is a genius We have lots of reasons for thinking that he's a genius Some of them is because we can read his text but also like we've known about Aristotle for thousands of years It's just that we didn't have his texts like we do now Aristotle's a genius. All truth is God's truth. Let's read it, man. Let's read it and let it fill in our knowledge and, and, and see if we can figure out how biblical revelation, a.k.a. grace, a.k.a. faith, goes together with Aristotle, a.k.a. reason, a.k.a. nature. Let's put them together. Thomas Aquinas is able to do that, but almost no one else in the West is. <laughs> according to Tyson and company. Mm. And so, in spite of what Thomas Aquinas does, his great synthesis of that Augustinian Neoplatonic philosophy together with the newly discovered Aristotle, uh, despite what Thomas Aquinas is able to do, the majority report in the West is, holy shit, we're scared by Aristotle. What do we do? And the only thing that people can figure out to do is to separate separate faith and reason Hmm. to separate theology and philosophy grace and nature and you can affirm them both maybe but you can't mix them Hmm. you can't connect them Hmm. you can't integrate them yeah you can be a Christian on Sunday and or maybe in your heart or maybe in your prayer life but when it comes to the real world the world of reason the world of science the world of politics it's all Aristotle baby, it's mm-hmm. all nature. And that is what Tyson means on page 60 when he says that modernity is medieval because all that stuff that I just said about separating that all of that, does that sound like our world? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. 100%. And see, that's an alternative myth. Mm-hmm. That myth that, ta- that uh, Tyson gives us contradicts the myth of progress. Mm-hmm. Because Tyson's myth says modernity is born from its mother, medievalism. Medievalism produces modernity. The other one says modernity scorns medievalism. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, I think and Tyson is correct.
2: <laughs> and he also locates that in the lives of, in the works of two great medievalists
1: scotus and Mm Occam. indeed
2: it says on page 69 um third paragraph so scotus gives modernity univocity voluntarism yep an inscrutable god Mm -hmm. and knowledge as representation Mm -hmm. wow four things they're mm-hmm. all of them. are. Yeah. all, all, all yeah. four of those things are essential to modernity and its project
1: and Scotus was in the 14th century yeah and then basically to two, go along two with, centuries before the reformation
2: to go along with your point he says that Occam brings nominalism back into play and not only separate like further separates maybe faith and reason or theology and philosophy but also separates things like church and political power that's right mm-hmm.
1: yeah mm. Now, so that the authority of the church is merely suasive, mm-hmm. it's merely spiritual. Yeah, it's merely about persuasion. Yeah, guess who gave a high five to that? Luther. Luther was a nominalist.
2: Yeah, and that's what he says in here is that most of the reformers were operating within a nominalist worldview when they came into like, yep, how do we navigate things like political and religious power?
1: Calvin is way harder to pin down. This is one of many reasons. Why I like Calvin better than Luther? Yeah, that's but interesting. Luther was just a straight-up nominalist.
0: Yeah. Well, and with in my conversation today with with um, Dr. Bach when we were talking about Neoplatonic Christianity, and we were talking about what is what
1: is Neoplatonic Christianity? Because mm-hmm. that's that's hard to pin down too. Uh, but man, he does it so well, this Tyson guy. My 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 understanding of how to answer that question doubled by reading this book. That's awesome. Well, and and that's. Because I think in, in maybe evangelical,
0: like kind of bible belt evangelical mind, mm-hmm. like you say, uh, Neoplatonic Christianity, they think like maybe some heretical...
1: Absolutely. You know. They, they think you're liberal. They, they think That's because you know, anything that they hear, they think is liberal. <laughs> so, but with,
0: with, with him, when we're talking about it, I think after fumbling out a few dozen things that were probably incoherent, you know, I thought, well, I said, you know, well, actually, you know, I think probably one of the most fundamental aspects of Neoplatonic Christianity is what Arnold de Lubach later would, would refer to as the integration of nature and grace. That's right. Which is simply, That's what he's saying. Which is simply to say the integration of faith and reason, mm-hmm. on an ontological level. Mm-hmm. You know, is that reason is impregnated with faith, mm-hmm. just like nature is impregnated with grace. Mm-hmm. There's a distinction, but there's mm-hmm. not an absolute distinction. Mm-hmm. Hence the title again. The title of
2: Returning
1: to Reality? Mm-hmm.
2: That's our, he, he wants to return to exactly what you're saying. It's, That's right. That is, that has existed in our history. Mm-hmm. I I thought the, like, um, these sections on Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. um, on Occam, the medieval architects, Mm-hmm. I thought like the the meta the metaphysical claims in here are just are really well stated it's like especially the neoplatonist ones or the partially Aristotelian ones or it's just it's everything that you would read in the being section from David Bentley Hart's book packed in like 20 pages not as well written you know
1: it, it's at <laughs> a much higher level I yeah. mean it Tyson. <laughs> is flying at the 30,000 foot level, David mm-hmm. Bentley Hart is like yeah. the 1,000 foot just, level. I just
2: mean like as far as analogy of being. Yeah,
1: and that's right.
2: Participation in all of those things. I, I, this is a great book, I think. I think any, it's a great book too. For anybody to read yeah. it, um, in metaphysics.
1: Yeah, Greg Bach should read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, chapter four, I kind of, I, I skimmed it really fast, because I frankly, I sort of think I already know what it's about. Um, Platonist ideas in the New Testament yes I agree I mean I agree Paul Acts 17 says God is he in whom we live and move and have our being Mm -hmm. Um, there you have it I mean (laughs) five minutes yeah Yeah, there you have it I mean our reality is suffused with God Mm. That's, that's utterly compatible with Neoplatonism
0: what is it? What is it? He says, in, "Is it Romans one? All of creation tells of the glory of God, so that man is without excuse."
2: Eighteen through twenty uh, verses. Eighteen through twenty. Yep. And and it's I, I look, There's a the section on Augustine and God is first love. You know, and then hmm. uh, he talks about with the Apostle Paul and First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen. Mm-hmm about this notion of seeing through a glass uh, mm-hmm. darkly mm-hmm. and that love never ends mm-hmm. our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect mm-hmm. but mm. when the perfect comes the imperfect will pass away
1: No, that that's totally compatible with christian yeah, neoplatonism absolutely. Pa- because what christian neoplatonism yeah. says is that we can understand things really and truly but radically incompletely Christian Neoplatonism affirms the finitude of our intellects mm-hmm. <laughs> so that there is so much that we can't understand we're swimming in mystery mm-hmm. but we can understand some things
2: but Augustine's like channeling Paul in a, in a Platonist kind of way uh-huh. by saying the deepest journey into God is through love for God is first and foremost love mm-hmm.
1: yeah and Ty- Tyson would agree with you and that's why he quotes uh, spends some time on the Phaedrus Mm-hmm. Even though he acknowledges that Phaedrus is more about eros yeah. and 1 Corinthians thirteen is more about agape, yeah, yeah. still, but eros, erotics, Platonic erotics mm-hmm.
0: teach us something that's really, I mean, important, especially mm-hmm. for Pigstock's conception of the Eucharist of signs. Totally, how eros teaches that teaches us that signs actually participate in forms.
1: Which is to say, they participate in the divine. And how? what does that have to do with Platonic erotics?
0: Hmm. Because Eros, Platonic erotics um, talk about the Eros or the lull of the divine, right? Theomania, awesome. divine madness, mm-hmm. things like that, where material things, and this was in my conversation today as well, about whether or not Plato's an escapist. And he may be more of an escapist than. Christian Christians, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say he's just an escapist, right? Because eros lulls us; the divine pulls us through material things, and so it's not it's not an escape from materiality. It's an it's 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 an ascension through materiality. That's right, and it's, that's erotics.
2: It's the interactive media, is what
1: he says. John Billbank calls it. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. And that quote that you read a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to say anything? Not right now. Because I think that some of that language reminds me of a paper that you wrote that I've been wanting to read and haven't about the liturgy. Yeah. About how um, the liturgy... Provoking our desire yeah. towards the divine. Yeah. In and through material things. Yes. yes. Because beauty is mediated through material things for us. Yeah. At least partially. Um, I know that we're running out of time. On page 131, he begins a list of about four things that, are, that, that characterize Neopla- uh, Christian Neoplatonism. And <laughs> the first one at the bottom of 131, this is in the chapter called, So What Went Wrong? He says, firstly, Christian Neoplatonism is an entirely integrative outlook. It is not reductive or closed. And I think we've we've already been talking about that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the idea that um, that the transcendent comes to us in and through material things. Hmm. Secondly, on the top of page one thirty-two, that first paragraph. Secondly, Christian neo- Christian Platonism does not think the modern idea of pure nature makes any sense at all.
0: <laughs>
1: right? Yeah. Right. so this is what we've been talking about right. absolutely thirdly christian neoplatonism maintains that moral aesthetic and spiritual qualitative meanings are real and are more primary than material quantitative facts this does not make the material and the quantitative unreal hmm. but what is apparent to the senses is not understood as intelligible or actual in anything other than a derived relationship to the spiritual realities on which all material manifestations are dependent.
0: It's not fully enclosed. Mm-hmm. What we see. That's
1: it's like right. it's in relation. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's how we know
1: it. Fourthly, Christian Platonism adheres to the notion of ontological participation, and the, then he he uh, fleshes that out in the following few paragraphs, and they are very good paragraphs. In classical Greek, the word "own" means being. Ontology then concerns the nature and meaning of being, of existent reality. And so those are the four characteristics of neo-Christian Platonism for Tyson. Um, What else, what else? Oh, page 141. This is repeating what Ian read earlier. These are Scotus, uh, Scotus, and Occam's gifts to us. Number one, voluntarism. Number two, university. Number three, representation. Number four, nominalism.
0: So, huh? You want to define those briefly?
1: Um, I can try voluntarism. He gives a really good
2: the list that I read. He gave a definition for for each one of them. If you sure. What page
0: is that?
1: You know, it would probably take three hours to define them. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we have time. Okay. Um, And maybe we can pick up the next podcast with that. I I do want to say, while we're waiting on Ian, that Tyson rightly, I was so glad about this, he emphasizes the condemnations of 1277 of the Bishop of Paris, Stephen Thompier, Mm -hmm. uh, which basically were condemning Thomas Aquinas, because Bishop Tompier was basically afraid of Aristotle, mm-hmm. and so he, he wanted to condemn Aristotle and even condemn some of the ways that Thomas gave a high five to Aristotle and therefore just sort of fideistically uphold Christian theology. Mm-hmm. Shame on him. That produced the modern world mm. <laughs> because it separates faith and reason. You create a void. In that may have been possible 100 years earlier in 1177 but in 1277 we had already drunk of Aristotle you can't just put your head in the sand like an ostrich and and pretend like that never happened no we have to have a responsible a a responsible response to Aristotle you can't just ignore him that's like fundamentalism Hmm. that created the modern world Mm -hmm. Like the Bible Belt pastor,
0: mm. you know, yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Um,
2: so, that list is so SCOTUS gives modernity, univocity, parentheses, my individual particular being is fully adequate as a measure of all being, in parentheses, voluntarism, pure will is fundamental to human nature, for humanity is made in God's image, an inscrutable God. Thus, religious devotion is an entirely different sort of enterprise to rational and practical endeavors. And knowledge is representation, which is the knowing subject surveys representations of the object of world within his own mind.
1: I, I There's a lot that I want to say about <laughs> yeah. voluntarism yeah. and university, mm-hmm. but we don't have time. That was good.
2: And we talked about representationalism. Yep, there,
1: we did.
0: Uh, two podcasts ago, like. Awesome. I have to go to a baby shower. Thank you. Good stuff. It's really good. Thank
1: you.